0: We return to our discussion on the Cuban living experience and the impact of the revolution on those living conditions in Cuba post-1959. And of course, so much of this economic backwardness has been created by the embargo on Cuba that we'll speak to in another show, but has great significant negative economic impacts on Cuba's material living conditions. And then With respect to the living conditions and how much they improved for the average Cuban post-revolution, Fidel explains the difference between capitalism and the socialist model of Cuba this way. He says that under capitalism, the worker depends almost entirely on his salary for his own subsistence and for that of his family and for the children's education and health. But under socialism... The problem of education, for example, and health no longer depends on a person's earnings. Health, education, none of these depend upon income since the state provides it for free. The other major reform that had the greatest pushback from the United States was the agrarian reform. On May 17, 1959, the Cuban revolutionary government passed the agrarian reform law that limited how much land a person could own. It forbade foreign owners from buying land and regulated the procedures for expropriating and compensating people who owned more land than was allowed, as well as handing over land to the landless who tilled it. It gave land to more than 200,000 peasant families and freed another 150,000 who worked the land as lessees or sharecroppers or squatters and... So this agrarian reform was a decisive step in fulfilling the program of the Moncada. Now the history that we get is that this land was stolen from the rightful owners and they were never properly compensated. So before playing this speech excerpt from Fidel on this subject, let me just indicate that the Cuban nationalization process affected property held by Cubans and foreigners alike. And the nationalization of U.S. property Began in 1960 following the law and was enacted on July 6, 1960. And it was in response to the continuous attacks on Cuban economic targets and U.S. domination of all basic economic sectors of activity in the country. Cuba settled compensation agreements for all property nationalized legislatively since 1959 with a bunch of other nations, all except the United States, which would have you believe that they were mistreated and their property stolen. What this revisionist history fails to share with the U.S. public is the fact that Cuba's best land, its mines, leading banks, telephone system, communications, electric power system, and sugar mills were in the United States' hands. Also left out of the framing of this Cuban nationalization history is the fact that this nationalization process has historical precedents in other nations, and Cuba put together a reasonable offers to all sorts of countries, including the United States, all of the other countries accepted. The compensation agreement offers? Except the United States. Uh, lump sum agreements were completed with Canada in 1980, France in 1967, Spain in 1988, and Switzerland in 1962. Italy, Mexico, and the United Kingdom reached agreements that were satisfied specific claims of nationals of those countries. So while Canada, France, Switzerland, Italy, Mexico, the United Kingdom, and Spain all negotiated compensation agreements with Cuba, only the United States did not, suggesting that it was the United States which failed to be an honest broker in those diplomatic efforts. Moreover, since World War II, the United States had negotiated 10 lump sum agreements in settlement of claims arising from the widespread nationalization of U.S.-owned property in other countries. And in these countries and in these settlements, the U.S. had accepted an average of less than 50% of the stated value of the nationalized property without any provision for interest. The average period of time provided in these agreements for the payment of compensation was 20 years. And so clearly, the United States not settling with Cuba was political. It had nothing to do with being reasonable. Listen to what Fidel Castro had to say about this issue of land reform and actually the ownership of the whole economic livelihood of Cuba by foreign nations.
1: There was also the problem that a major part of Cuba's land belonged to American companies. And what really started the conflict between Cuba and the United States the laws of agrarian reform. After the Cuban Revolution, some American politicians began talking about the need for agrarian reform in Latin America. But at that time, the term was a forbidden word. The United States owned our mines. They owned our electrical plants our telephone company, our major means of transportation. The United States owned our bigger sugar mills. In other words, they owned the Cuban economy.
0: The Cuban Revolution rejected all of this exploitation by the West led by the United States in Cuba and throughout the world. And this is why the Cuban Revolution is not allowed to survive, flourish, and develop. If all countries... Did what Cuba did and prioritize the quality of life of their majority populations first and foremost. Where would all the profiteering of these corporations, these multinational corporations, where would they realize their rates of profiteering? They could not. But what I want to return to is a nature of, of actualizing revolutionary principles that we started the show off with. And we've just gone through the promises made by Fidel Castro. In 1953, during the Moncada, and following through with them in the first years of the revolution, and whether it was a literacy program, whether it was promoting health care throughout the Cuba island that has resulted as with the highest life expectancies and lowest infant mortality rates, etc., whether it was education, which was prioritized and followed through on and has been documented on the show as well whether it was a land reform to reverse the inequalities that existed prior to the revolution. Those are some examples of promises made and promises kept. What could be a better measuring stick for revolutionary principled behavior? Other examples briefly worthy of your own investigation include a number of other verifiable examples, such as in the Bay of Pigs in 1961. When the United States invaded Cuba and sought to overthrow their government at the Bay of Pigs, it was Fidel Castro that led the military defense in response to the U.S. invasion and put his own life on the line. Originally, they did not know where the attack would be, but as soon as they figured it to be at the Bay of Pigs and the landing had already occurred, it was Fidel down there within 24 hours in a tank, bombs going off around him and his subordinate military people urging him to get out of that military danger zone. Fidel's words were very clear and immediate. He refused to leave. He indicated that the revolution was at stake, that they must repel this invasion by the U.S. within 72 hours, or risk the United States recognizing this beachhead mercenary army claiming its governorship. And so Fidel put his life on the line because his life was unimportant if the revolution failed. Compare that to our wars, all of the unjust wars that we put our young men and young women in harm's way. These people are sent by people that have no skin in the game. They generally have no kids that are going to be at the brunt of war. They certainly aren't going to be at the brunt of war, but they're always so quick to put everyone else in harm's way. But Fidel's behavior of putting his life on the line is expected of any revolutionary. In fact, throughout Cuba, you can see placards inspired by such actions with the words homeland or death. This is just one example of revolutionary behavior. Another principled behavior that I discovered in my studies of Cuba, in 1901, there was the Platt Amendment. It followed the Second Cuban War of Independence against Spain, in which Cuba was on the verge of expelling the Spanish from Cuba. The United States, in 1898, got involved under the pretext of the bombing of the Maine. As a result of Cuba's impending victory, the United States actually instilled a government and the Platt Amendment was adopted by the government that was recognized by the United States, the illegitimate government. Within that Platt Amendment, it gave the Guantanamo Bay to the Americans for a lease. When the revolution came to power, some 55, 58 years later in 1959, immediately Fidel Castro and their government said, we do not recognize the Platt Amendment, we do not accept the agreement. And they immediately no longer continued accepting the annual lease payments just as a matter of principle. You have basically illegally taken our land, and we do not recognize it nor accept payment on a monthly basis per the Platt Amendment's Guantanamo provision. Another principled behavior that is seldom talked about has to do with the Forbes magazine, and yet another hit piece slandering Fidel Castro and called Journalism on May 5, 2006 Louisa Kroll wrote a piece, Fortunes of Kings, Queens, and Dictators, in Forbes magazine. And in that article, Forbes estimated Fidel Castro had personal net worth of some $900 million and that Fidel had money stowed away at offshore bank accounts or such. Fidel completely denied the reports and even offered to resign if any truth to the claim could be proven. Here's a president that the United States had been trying to overthrow for 50 years, had tried to assassinate on dozens and dozens of occasions, basically indicating he would resign in a heartbeat if any of these slanderous accusations were true. They have never been proven to be true. Fidel's promise to resign if such accusations were true. This seems to be consistent with a principle-driven leader, that if he was guilty of any such character flaw as taking the Cuban money for his own benefit, he would step down in a heartbeat. Another example, I think, has to do with the Cuban example in Angola. Apartheid South Africa finally came to an end in the 1990s, but they actually suffered their first military defeat at the hands of Cuba in Angola in the 1980s, the late 1980s at Cuito Cuanavale. In fact, the military forces of Angola and Cuba were under the direct command of Fidel Castro from Cuba. Just a side note to the incredible military acumen that Fidel had displayed his whole life, whether it was a revolutionary war whether it was the Bay of Pigs or whether it was Angola, Fidel earned the reputation as an exceptional military mind. This was a secret mission or had started as a secret mission. Thousands and thousands of Cuban technicians and military went to Angola. And in fact, over 2,000 Cubans died fighting the South African army. What's remarkable is a number of principles. Number one, A very large percentage, something close to 25%, of those killed in battle, those Cuban military killed in battle, were officers. Uh, Officers led, they didn't lead from behind, they led on the ground by example. Another connection that's really important from a principal point of view of internationalism is that Nelson Mandela indicated that Cuba was a decisive factor in the ultimate overthrow of apartheid South Africa. A lot of it had to do with Angola and the military defeat there, but also it had to do with Cuba sending all sorts of volunteers to help various African nations onto their feet through health programs and other Cuban internationalist efforts. And at the end of the day, when the South African army finally receded from Angola and Namibia and back to the Southern Cone of Africa and apartheid was overthrown, It was Cuba that was cited by Nelson Mandela himself as a decisive factor in the overthrow of apartheid South Africa. So who are you going to believe, Nelson Mandela or U.S. propagandists? When Cuba started pulling its troops back out, bringing them back to Cuba, along with many of its technicians, they did not leave behind factories to make profits, to suck the mineral wealth, the labor, and the blood out of another country. Their work was done. Their selfless internationalist work was done. That is the action of a principled revolutionary country that Cuba certainly is, but never gets recognized for. And finally, when it comes to Angola, there was a general, General Ochoa, who, upon being found guilty for dereliction of duty by being engaged in illicit narcotics behavior from Angola and therefore deflecting his full attention to the protection of his own troops. This was such an egregious act from a military-principled perspective of betraying the people you're responsible for that it resulted in his death by execution. In the last few minutes of the show, I just wanted to share my own personal observations from visits I made to Cuba. I would regularly go to the Bay of Pigs, where I befriended people many years earlier, and they shared with me pictures in the 1960s, the very early 1960s, of something as simple as a water faucet. They had never had running water in this part of Cuba. And within a year or so, in this rural area, water was brought where water had not ever been available. It seems rather simple, but it really speaks to the revolutionary nature of a government that prioritizes people's needs over profits. I wanted to return to the video that we've been excerpting from. This first one is a campesino speaking about the advancements that the revolution has prioritized and the challenges that lay ahead.
1: Before, only a few could have things. Today, everyone can. Everyone is at the same level. There are still problems, housing problems, for example. The revolution hasn't yet produced enough construction materials. But in the future, we plan to solve the problems of everyone. You will see the favorable as well as the unfavorable. Because the past left us hunger and misery. And although the revolution is trying to eradicate all this, it was so bad that you can't do it in a day. It's a question of time.
0: And then it is followed by Fidel speaking to the question that a lot of Americans are concerned about regarding personal freedom.
1: A lot of Americans are concerned about personal freedom. In English, freedom. Individual freedom. What does the phrase mean to Cubans and to you? I think there are two different concepts of freedom you believe that freedom can exist within a class society and we believe in a society without classes, where there are no millionaires or multimillionaires at the top of the pyramid and where some don't even have a job? I wonder if you can compare the freedom of the millionaire with that of the beggar, of the unemployed. Within the American conception, they are all equal, they are all free. But we believe this is false. We believe that without equality, there is no freedom. Because then you have to speak about the freedom of the beggar, and the prostitute, of the exploited, of the person discriminated against, of the illiterate. What is freedom to write and speak for a man who doesn't know how to write, who doesn't know how to read? I don't deny that there are certain groups of people in the United States who can publish their opinions freely. But this great freedom of the press, in the end, amounts to the freedom of the owners of the newspapers to decide what to publish. Why can't an opposition party here publish a newspaper? Historically, political parties have represented different classes. The workers of this country have their party, but the landowners do not nor do the owners of large industry have a party. It is not permitted. We consider our state a coercive one until we complete this phase of transition from capitalism to communism. Afterwards, there will be no classes exploiting others, and there will be no need for a state with coercive
0: powers. In May 1st, 2003, speech by Fidel at the International Workers' Day at Havana, he says, quote, There has never been a people with such sacred things to defend and with such deep convictions to fight for in such a way that they would rather disappear from the face of the earth before renouncing the noble and generous work of which several generations have paid a high cost with the lives of their outstanding children, end quote. And he's referring to the internationalism health program in which Cuba has engaged with over 100 countries of the world. And then I wanted to end the show returning to the concept of revolutionary responsibility, revolutionary ethics, and a revolution in general. And these are words that are directly from another May Day speech three years earlier that Fidel gave at the Jose Marti Revolutionary Square in Havana. He said, quote, Revolution is the sense of the historic moment. Revolution is to change all which must be changed. Revolution is complete equality and liberty. Revolution is to be treated and to treat others as equals, as human beings. Revolution is to emancipate ourselves by ourselves And with our own efforts. Revolution is to challenge dominant, powerful forces within the social and national scope and realm. Revolution is to defend values in which we believe at any price of any sacrifice. Revolution is modesty, unselfishness, altruism, solidarity, and heroism. Revolution is to never lie or violate ethical principles. Revolution is the profound conviction that there is no power in the world capable of destroying the strength of the truth and ideas. Revolution is unity, is independence. Revolution is to fight for our dreams of justice for Cuba and the world, which is the base of our patriotism, our socialism, and our internationalism. In 2006, the World Wildlife Fund defined sustainable development as, quote, a commitment to improving the quality of human life while living within the carrying capacity of supporting ecosystems, end quote. It was measured by two criteria, Human Development Index, which is a confluence of life expectancy, literacy rates, education, per capita GDP, etc. And the second was a country's ecological footprint. And apparently, the average biocapacity available per person on the planet is 1.8 hectares per person and Cuba had an ecological footprint below that. Among all the countries of the world in 2007 only Cuba qualified in both areas. That strikes me as being truly revolutionary. I wanted to close the show out with a final indication. Fidel had talked about many features of a revolution including modesty. It was Fidel that was always against the cult of personality until his dying days, insisting that after his death his name and figure never be used to name plazas, avenues, streets, and other public places, as well as the building of statues. The Cuba government apparently presented a bill, a legal measure, to the National Assembly, which forbids the use of his name and image being used for monuments and in other public places. This is an announcement that had been previously made by Raul. I leave you with this, that the quality and the nature of the Cuban revolution should be not judged by propaganda and revisionist history, but by the deeds of a nation, and no country has done more for the developing world per capita than Cuba through its international program of health aid and education throughout the developing world. Something we did not have time to explicate tonight. At the end of the day, revolutionary behavior is ethical behavior, and counter-revolutionary behavior is unethical behavior that enables rather than confronts oppression. See you next week. Don't be late. Also, we need you to switch on over to the internet if you're not already there to access Lost in Paradise, coming up next on 91.7 K O O P. It's a show that evolves around laid-back grooves, both old and new, nothing too slow or fast. Enjoy your time with Chad D. As we do every show, we take you out with Land of Naivety. See you next week.
1: Kickbacks are his cards. He breaks all his own laws.